Have you ever heard the phrase, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying? I know you have. I know I have heard it a lot over the years. And today in my interview with John Simpson, we're going to touch on that one among many other things about why that phrase is terrible and you should never follow that advice. All right. So stick around. We're going to get into it. But with that said, welcome to the Everyday Marksman. The podcast is all about tactical skills for living a more adventurous life. I'm your host, Matt Robertson, and today we are going to a bit of a throwback because I am bringing back my very first guest ever, John Simpson, the author of Foundations of Sniper Marksmanship. In this episode, we're going to go through his revised book. He had a a new edition come out he sent to me, and I want to talk through some of the additions he added to it as well as some of the ideas that we just didn't get to talk to the first time around because, well, I am by no means a great podcast interviewer at this point. I know a lot more today than I did three, four years ago, the first time I talked to him. So we're going to get into all of that as we go. Uh, Before I do that, just thank you for being here. I know I've been on a little bit of a break. I tend to do that around August, late summer, fall every year. So I am back. I am posting. And I've got a lot of ideas for what we're going to do next. So I'm glad you're here. Our website's everydaymarksman.co. There you're going to find today's show notes, as well as a bunch of links for things we talk about, our awesome community of Marksman YouTube channel, and all of that good stuff. So come check it out, subscribe, and thanks. With that said, let's get into it. So John, welcome to the Everyday Marksman once again. Good to be back. So it's uh, good to see you. Last time we did this, I remember we had we had a pretty good time trying to get the audio to work before we finally just kind of like kicked the bucket. <laughs> and it was just like, all right, we're just going to do this over a phone call or something. Uh, right, yeah. And we, we wound up having to do it by phone. And it was, uh, I remember, because and then when you started, you were like, well, you know, I'm, I'm hoping we can get like an hour out of this or anything <laughs> like that. And it's like we wound up talking for two hours before you know, we finally had to pull the plug. So, yeah, yeah, it was, uh, so I also, with that, I'll say thanks because, uh, I think almost, I would say 70% of like the first round of guests, which lasted me like six months of six months of podcast episodes were all people that you, you sent me to. They're like, Oh, you need to go talk to Derek Bartlett. You need to go talk to Russ Miller. You need to go talk to, um, Oh, I can't remember some of the ones. Oh, I'm going to hate it. The, the, the mill coon. Oh, the wind book. And, Oh, uh, Linda Miller and yes, uh, yeah, yeah, Linda and Keith, yeah, Linda and Keith. Which I still get emails about that interview, by the way. So like, people loved that one. Oh yeah, F- fantastic people. So, um, all right, so we're gonna get right into it. So, John, uh, we're gonna talk about sniper training, but part of this got got kicked off because you had a revision to your book, The Foundation of Sniper Marksmanship. So I read through, I read through the second edition. Uh, we'll talk about some of the changes in here as well. Uh, but I actually want to start with, I know the answer to this, but I, I want to hear you kind of talk about it, is why this book? What what made you want to write it? Well, originally it was, um, it was based off of experiences I had teaching police snipers with Derek Bartlett at Snipercraft. You could guarantee that somebody showing up had been trained in handgun and maybe shotgun at the police academy but we're seeing more and more guys they hadn't served in the military they hadn't received basic riflemanship guys show guys show up to advanced class and they don't know what minutes of angle are or they're 
their previous school only had them shooting off of the prone bipod with the, those stupid sand socks under the toe of their stock. And they literally didn't know how to shoot. I wanted to create a book that a sniper team leader could hand to Officer Matt and go, hey, look, I know you're scheduled for uh, sniper school. Go ahead, read through this. Practice the uh, dry fire, you know, practice the drills in here. Come on out with the rest of the team when we do our live fire. Uh, we'll see how you absorbed it. And then when they show up at uh, a sniper craft school, then they can like get right into the sniper stuff because it's, it, this is, it's what I describe as the paradox between military and police snipers because a lot of people are, you know, one thing having trained both, people are always asking, well, you know, what's the difference between the two of them, you know? And it's like um, one of the things that I have noticed is, is that when I was teaching at Fort Bragg, all of our students had been through, you know, they'd at least been through Army Basic. They'd been trained in basic rifle marksmanship on M16s out to 300 meters. And then they would show up and get handed an M24 and go through six to eight weeks of a sniper school before they graduate. And I was, as I was saying earlier, for police snipers, they graduate the academy. The only thing that their record fired on, guaranteed, is their, their sidearm. And then these are the guys that are showing up for a five-day, 40-hour sniper school where you have to teach all of the stuff that goes into sniping and you also have to teach them basically basic rifle marksmanship. So it's, you know, it, it's almost a, it's almost an impossible task to do it right. So what I wanted to do was, is front load this into a manual. And then it also developed into a common manual for sniper instructors, because we get so many people have absolutely no idea what it takes to train police snipers. And um, we're already starting to see it where guys that were snipers in Afghanistan and Iraq, they're getting it. They, you know, they came home, they got out and they're like, hey, I'm going to hang out my shingle and I'm going to make a fortune training police snipers. And it turns out that they have had, they literally have no idea what they're doing. And they, they try training them as military snipers. And it's it's just a non-starter. So. Here's a manual where it's like, you know what? If you want to train police snipers, follow the stuff in this book and you'll be good to go because it's like, it's the way that we do it as sniper craft. And it's the way that um, Russ Miller and I do it for the rifle workshops we do with his company, Yankee Training Group. So then, one of the things I remember reading the very first time that when I read it, when I did the review the first time that I remembered, and it's still very true now is the way that you have this written is, is it's, it's, it's this whole history thing. Like you're using drawings from the civil war where it's, it's like this stuff hasn't changed. Like we, we've known how to shoot rifles at a basic level for a long, long time. And you know, why are we going through the trouble of trying to re refigure that out? you know, like master the basics first, because that's, we know how to do that. And then right. all the super fancy techniques that are out there, like, okay, that's cool, but the basics work really well too. 
Exactly. And that's what you build it on. And some of the most frequent comments I got on the book is that I chose to use the um, the, the line drawings from the small the Army Small Arms Firing Manual uh, from, from 1889. And the thing is, in most cases, you can put photographs of modern-day successful rifle shooters next to those drawings, and there's, like, no difference between them. One of the things that I, I don't like, people do change for the sake of change. Nobody really understands history, and if you don't study history, you don't know what's been tried before. You don't know what worked before, and you don't know what's failed before. By By putting those drawings in there... I was sending a message to everybody, please try it this way before you try to improve things. And you might be surprised. You can't improve something, except by dumb luck, you can't improve something that you you don't comprehend. It was the, the science fiction writer Isaac Asimov that said that you have to master what you hope to improve. Mm-hmm. I, I can't I can't put it any better than that. I, I've had stuff that I've, I've put out there and without even trying it, people are like, hey, you know, you could do this. And it turns out they completely missed the, the purpose of the exercise. As, as you know, one of my big one of my big uh, things is about getting everyday people to learn skills so that they can be prepared, whether it's, hey, I'm going to go be a competitive shooter or what would go law enforcement, military, or it's I want to I'm just looking out to protect my neighborhood like if bad times come. And uh, I thought, you know, one of the things you shared is kind of funny. I got the graphic here to, to show is that, um, you know, you're doing something right when you see, so I think you said this was your sales. The sales rank on Amazon. So I, because my books are sold on Amazon, I have as an, as a, as an Amazon author, I have access to some of the sales metrics. And this one happens to be the, uh, the, my sales rank in comparison with every other book that's sold by Amazon. And, um, and so the, I, the date yeah, I was checking this. Just... And then when you, when you see the date that it started to peak and you compare that to world events, uh, and now this, this was, and then this was for the Kindle sales. So, um, yeah. you know, for future viewers, basically uh, right after, uh, right after Russia invaded Ukraine, the um, the Kindle sales of my book basically went vertical. You know, I was never able to confirm from Amazon who was buying all of these digital copies of my book, but I I couldn't shake the the idea for a number of days that you know there were these underground sniper schools in Ukraine where people were huddled around uh, uh, you know Kindle readers, um, just going, okay, now you know hold it like this. <laughs> and you and you in YouTube videos. Yeah. All right. So, um actually I want to get to some of the contents here. So, uh, you, you told me like, some of the changes were I want to start with a point here about the eye dominance because uh, that was one of the things you added. I thought it was a really interesting, you know, insert you had here about the percentage of people who do cross dominance and then meet high level shooters. But can you talk a little bit about, you know, why does eye dominance matter and what do people do wrong with? Sure. It? Um so basically when I was working at the uh, Fort Bragg school, there was a, uh, uh, back in the, back in the early eighties, uh, an article came out in American rifleman magazine. It was called do the eyes have it. And it was, uh, basically an analysis of the, um, 
the professor that I reference, uh, I give credit to in the book. He was contracted by the NRA to uh, look at various factor, various physical and mental factors that went into success in competitive rifle shooting. And one of the things that he studied was your your dominant eye. And for those of us that are, you know, those of you just joining the program, you know, just like you have a, you know, a dominant hand, either right or left-handed, you're also right or left-eyed. They they printed this chart, and all of a sudden, I mean, it was one of these things where it was like, I, I got that thump to the side of the head, because the higher up you went in rifle competition, the fewer instances of cross dominance. So somebody would be left eye dominant and they shoot off of their right shoulder or their right eye dominant and they're left-handed and they would shoot off of their left shoulder. And so this is interesting to me because my wife, my wife does that. She, she is right eye dominant, but I'm sorry, she's left eye dominant, but shoots right-handed. Uh, and we figured that out shooting handguns. So I'm, I'm curious now if you run that with a rifle shooting, what do you suggest? Uh, basically, uh, and I, I've never, I've never strayed from this from the eighties. No matter how uncomfortable it feels, I insist that they shoot off of the shoulder that has their where their dominant eye is. That makes sense. Now, have you, when people do that, have you run into like should they get left-handed rifles too? Uh, or, or I mean, if it's, it, if it's in the budget, yeah. I mean, because if you're talking about bolt guns, um, it, it becomes it becomes a hassle, and um, you know, and especially especially in the army when all we had were right-handed bolt guns. I mean, some people were really, they, they weren't happy that, you know, this sergeant is telling them that they have to shoot off of an opposite shoulder now. But then over the six-week course, uh, basically, I would make them shoot that way. And then mm-hmm. without fail, these guys would come up to be going, man, I never thought I'd shoot this good. Because they find out that's the way that they were wired from birth to shoot. Interesting, hey, interesting, interesting point with your wife though. Did she play golf? No. Oh, too bad. Because one of the one of the results of that study by that professor, if you are if you're right-handed and you have left eye dominance, it turns out that you're the perfect that's the perfect setup for putting on the green. Oh. So because, oh. Yeah. So now that you say yeah. that, I think she is actually better than me at mini golf. So yeah, exactly. Because the thing is, it's like they're, you know, when you're going, basically when you're lining up for the shot, her dominant eye is lined up on the ball as she's swinging with her right hand. She's uh, swinging from the right side. So something else I found here now, now this was not new to the book. Um, I just, I just didn't catch it last time, you know, was three years ago. Uh, the first time around, but having read and written so much more since then, now it caught my eye. And that was, you discussed in the 1950s, this thing uh, called train fire, yes. which was, a, I'm going to call it, oh, you can tell me if I'm wrong. It was like a philosophy around training for more realistic conditions in combat. Correct. So, um, and there was, you listed a series of principles, I'm not going to go through all of them, but there was two that stood out to me that I, I want to come back to make sure we discuss. Sure. Because they, they align so much with everything I keep seeing over and over and over again. One of them is the typical envelope of engagement, 300 meters, 300 yards. Like that's, you know, whereas a lot of people have this fantasy, especially with like sniper, snipers that, oh, it's always 800,000, you know, 1,200 yards right. all the time. And um, the statistics just don't show that. Not that it can't happen, but that's just not the statistics. 
especially stateside, you know, you know, law enforcement engagements. Um, but, and also there was a really interesting point in there, which is probably not so much sniper related, but the nature of the target terrain, everything means shooting prone isn't likely. Correct. That was another big one. Correct. Um, you know, as, as Kyle Lamb wrote, like, we don't live in a prone world most of the time. So like people spent too much emphasis training for prone, but train fire did say that you will likely shoot from something supported, you know, whether it's kneeling or yeah. resting on a barrier, or if you're standing in a foxhole, or a tree. that's, yeah, that's realistic or a tree. So uh, I'm going to kick it back over to you now though. <clears throat> so, you know, what was the whole idea of train fire? Okay. So we, we fought in one world war two, uh, we fought and came to a draw in the Korean war. And then I, I say this because the, the target shooters out there, God love them. Because if it was up to them, we would have gone back to bullseye shooting. And if you ask the vast majority of them, they don't understand anything about train fire. They just know train fire bad. Okay. Train fire was the end of civilization as we know it. And Eisenhower is the president. He receives a letter from a civilian. And this is the true origin of train fire. Because if you try, if you try look at reading these forums or message boards or you know, all this other stuff, nobody knows what they're talking about. I heard one, I don't know if you ever heard of the Vietnam era quick kill that was uh, a program that was designed by Lucky McDaniel. People are saying that this 1965 program is what led the army to create train fire in the mid-1950s. But I digress. <laughs> so this guy writes a letter to President Eisenhower. And he's like, you know what? You know, I spent my life shooting. Uh, you know, there, there's got to be a better way. So Eisenhower flies this guy to Washington and basically sits him down in, in front of a bunch of Army personnel. They start a series of research where they're like, well, why do we do it this way? Now, let me back up a bit because to really appreciate it and know why we used to use bullseye targets, you've got to look at like, you know, and I'll just really briefly cover it. You got to look at the army from like the 1920s and the 1930s because once, and you'll, you'll really appreciate this as far as the approach to training for when you're, you're worried about taking care of your neighborhood. If you're, you know, if you're interested in self-defense, then this is the approach that we used to use. So back in the day, you're out on a fort in the, you know, on the prayer, on the American prairie somewhere. It's the 1920s. You would have your marksmanship training. Gentlemen, this is an 03 Springfield. You know, here's the sights. This is how you work them. This top notch, believe it or not, is for uh, 2,800 yard shooting, which which is another story in itself. Um, and the thing is, it's like, okay, here's how you hold it. Here's the positions. Here's your trigger control. Here's how you line up the sights. You would practice on bullseye targets. You got to score this many points off of these scoring rings on the bullseye targets because we're training and we're testing your marksmanship, which boiled down to the essentials is the ability to hit the mark with a rifle bullet. That's all. Then there's a big parade. 
everybody gets their bolo badge and you're qualified as marksman sharpshooter and expert which is kind of interesting because going back to the 1800s at one time marksman was like the highest qualification that you get could get on the rifle and then after and then sharpshooter was the highest qualification you could get so you you can see a bit of uh you can see a bit of inflation there so uh so after the marksmanship training that's where you fired your score on the rifle range and i fired my score on the rifle range and you know but you get your expert badge i get my sharpshooter badge i was having a bad day when that's done the musketry training begins and in the united states it was called musketry training up until after world uh, about after world war ii what musketry training was is now squad leader matt takes all of his squad that have uh that have qualified and he goes off to a series of training events that trains that squad in collective fire so marksmanship was all about individual fire this is you all by yourself and then Musketry was engaging silhouette targets collectively as a squad. And so, for example, so you would get trained. That's where you got training on range estimation. Because shooting on a known distance range, despite what some of the target shooters will tell you, you don't learn how to estimate range on a known distance range. Okay. Not as long as you can, like, look over to the side, see the little sign that there's 300 yards. And you busy apply it to your sites. So from there, so you get range estimation, you get sketching, you get fire control orders, and then you would go through a series of practices and exercises. So for instance, you know, you take your squad over to the to one of the musketry ranges. And they they had musketry ranges just like they had marksmanship ranges. You would go to a musketry range. And it's like, okay, um, you know, Sergeant Matt, go ahead and, you know, deploy your people on that, you know, have your people on that berm. Come on back here and talk to me. When, you know, come on back here and see me once you're all settled. And then when everybody is there, you're going, okay, so this problem is, is there's a enemy rifle squad down in the wood line. And I need you to control the fire of your squad so that they can effectively engage that target. And then. So we, just so, so I'm curious, because you're saying effectively control your fire. Cause I, what's the definition of that? Cause in my mind, that, that means one thing. So, um, uh, you know, nor, like normal rule of thumb when it came to the time when you had automatic riflemen, it's like, okay, automatic riflemen for this nature of target, you're going to be on the flanks. You're going to start, on the right flank and move to the center you're going to move from the left and you're going to go to the center and then there's this much overlap or if the target is engaged in what we call enfilade where it's like a column that's pointed in your direction then you're going to okay so you guys are going to engage this so with the foot now with the and then to your specific question you got to remember you got to understand Back then, the only guy that had binoculars was the squad leader. So when he's looking at those E-type silhouettes, 
that are in the wood line at the end of the range, he's the only one that can see them. Because you lay down there with your O3 Springfield and you're looking with iron sights, you can't see the target. So what he has to do is go, you see that fence line? See that 300-yard fence line that you know that's between us and the target? I want everybody to aim at the top strand of barbed wire on that fence because you can all see that. So I want you to aim there, but I want you to have your sights set for 600 yards. The squad leader was able to calculate that, okay, if they aim here, if they aim at a target 300 yards away and they have their elevation set for 600 yards, they're going to engage these targets at the edge of the wood line, which I estimate to be X yards away. So so it's almost, so you're directing fire almost like it's artillery Correct. at that point. It's almost indirect. Correct. Except th- th- this was direct fire. The um, right, yeah, to me, like they can't actually see what they're hitting, they're just right, like following guidance and direction. He's acting as a forward observer and telling these guys how to aim and how to aim their rifles so that they can hit a target that they can't see. Which, okay, as you know, a lot of people will tell you that you know, yeah, you know, shooting at E type silhouettes on the KD range is a lot of fun, but the thing is, in real life. Soldiers are doing soldierly things, and they're not cooperating with your efforts to shoot them. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so this is a side question. Then, how much do you think this influences things? Like, it was started, I think, concept in the eighties and the nineties, but general, actually, way back then. But let me guess my question, which is the general issue of magnified optics to everybody, right? Like the Marine. Yeah, because the thing is, it's like you know, you're you're able to see the target. Okay, it gives you a it gives you a, a a qualitative advantage being able to see the target before, you know, before they can see you or you can, you know, at least you can see each other at the same time. Mm-hmm. So now, okay. so this was the state of, this was the state of marksmanship and musketry training for, for decades. Then World War II starts. You had a situation where officer cadets for technical fields were being pulled out of their school and told, congratulations, you're being commissioned in the infantry. Once we had air superiority, anti-aircraft gunners all of a sudden found themselves as infantrymen. Well, even infantrymen, after the initial phases of the war, where they had to, uh, you know, they had to get guy, they had to get warm bodies down range quickly all of a sudden it was like, okay, you hit the bullseye this many times, you got your bolo badge, you're qualified. We'll worry about, we'll, we'll kick the can down the road as far as musketry training goes. So people would, people would deploy. And then what eventually happened was people just qualified on, they just worried about the qualification. And then there were a couple of, um, there were a couple of efforts where they, uh, they added, they added new firing tables uh, to where, okay, after you do the bullseye, then we're going to have what we call transition fire, where you're going to start shooting at E-type silhouettes and, and everything, E and F-type silhouettes, and you know, for a kneeling man and a prone man. And, um, but then it was, you know, everything fell by the wayside because it's like, okay, as long as you're authorizing people, you know, the vast majority of commanders, uh, especially with the 
you know, the moderate, you know, the mechanized warfare and everything else. Once they, you know, once they get to pin that bolo badge on your chest, it's like, you know what? You're qualified on rifle. Okay. My, my work here is done. So now fast forward, it's, we're back at the, we're back in the fifties. This is what the critics fail to understand. The field grade officers and the generals and the senior NCOs that had all been trained under bullseyes and fought in World War II in Korea were the ones that were pushing for train fire. They conducted a, a bunch of research, and I've, I've got a bunch, of, I have a bunch of the reports in my files. I mean, they were like, hey, you know, does it do us any good to personalize the stock length? And they would have a test where, all right, we're going to have 50 guys with this length that, you know, fitted stocks and then, you know, 50 guys with all standard stocks and we'll compare the scores and everything else. Needless to say, we never had any adjustable stocks on the, you know, on the M14. Okay. Hmm. So then uh, they came up with, they came up with the list and, and that was one of the things that I really liked about train fire that, that list that you admired so much, because the thing is, it's like, you know, even though, you know, and maybe I reproduced too much, you know, I had second thoughts about reproducing the whole thing because I was worried somebody was going to go, well, you know, you're talking about bully sniping. It's like, no, no, that's, this is an example of, you know what, <laughs> this is a list where the designers of the program all agreed upon. This is the target. One of the most successful things that you can do when you're setting up a weapons-based training program, you define the target. And then you work backwards from that instead of just going, you know, we're going to do this and, you know, we're going to, we're going to see how tight we can get the group and, you know, all this other stuff. It's what I call the, um, it's what I call the Cracker Barrel School of Training Development. That's where a bunch of guys sit around the Cracker Barrel going, hey, Matt, you know, what do you think, you know, what do you think the standard should be? Well, I don't know, John, what do you think? Hey, you know what? Let's do this. Yeah, okay. I, I know exactly what you're talking about because this is what this is what I do. Part of my day job is training development and certification stuff. So, and I, I it's the same problem. I get a bunch of smart people in a room and 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 they think I'm gonna be like, tell me what tell me what you think we should test. And I'm like, no, we're gonna define what's required. Like, what do you do right, every day? Exactly. Yeah. So, how do you measure success? Okay, because anything else is arbitrary. So, you get you know they said, hey, look, you know what? This emphasis on 500 to 600 yard targets, uh, research, you know, basically we kept a bunch of statistics in World War II in Korea, and it turns out that, uh, you know, the, you know, the majority of targets were all within 300 yards. And you know what? There's a lot of people that said, hey, I couldn't see a German soldier or I couldn't see a Japanese soldier. I was just, I, you know, I saw muzzle flashes on some Pacific island somewhere and I was shooting at them. And that's where they, you know, that's where they came up with that list. It was like, hey, you know what? We've been beating our brains out teaching everybody how to use a loop sling. And we can't find any evidence that, you know, anybody actually used a loop sling in, in World War II. I mean, I did find one instance. I, I found one documented instance of a bunch of, guy, a bunch of Marines using loop slings in the Korean War. So. So you reminded me, um, I, I wrote, I revised from time to time, but there's an article I wrote uh, about Norman Hitchman's report 
1952. And he was citing a bunch of stuff, you know, and this ultimately was part of the development that led, in my opinion, to the AR-15 N223. But uh, he cites this study here, which is Pike and Gopal, which is what we're talking about here is, is building people's experience yes. where they analyze a whole bunch of battlefields and then said, all right, what was the actual visibility of, of it? And you can see like probability of actually seeing what you're shooting at drops as soon as you cross that, that around 300. Like this is, you know, what, what you get. So it's just kind of funny. All these things aligning, aligning together. Right. Because the thing, see, what people fail to understand is that training on the range is a means to an end. But for a lot of people, it becomes an end in itself. Back in 1977, when I went to basic combat training, I did it at Fort Jackson, South Carolina. Fort Jackson, South Carolina is where people go for advanced individual training in becoming a Kirk typist. Okay, they, they used to call them Remington Raiders. And the thing is, I had a bunch of teammates in my training platoon that, you know, I was going to go to Fort Benning for infantry school, but these guys were going to stay at Fort Jackson and become Kirk typists. And the thing is, during the tactical training, they were all out there learning how to camouflage, doing three-second rushes, learning about cover and concealment, doing low crawls, tactical movement, and everything else. And that's just the Kirk typist in basic. Mm -hmm. And that completely, you know, everybody seems to ignore that when they're designing their courses of fire because you have well-defined targets. You have all the time in the world to shoot them. And that's where I came up with the whole thing about, you know, most people train for, to engage targets that are cooperating with their efforts to kill them. Mm -hmm. So actually I want to, that kind of gets to another point here. Um, yeah. One of the new, the newer appendices you added, I wanted to highlight was says playing playing the game in training, because I think this is the idea. If I'm my understanding of this is how often when someone's like they know they're in a training environment, or 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 it's like a simulation of something, and then because of that they try and find ways to like, all right, well I'm going to do this and to play and like game the system so they do better at it, but then they don't actually right. get the training value out of what you were supposed to be there for. And I don't know. What do you think? Like, like why did you feel like that was really important to include? A number of years ago, I did a really, I re did a really deep analysis of tactical training and I identified a number of principles. One of them was uh, innovation is followed by stagnate, innovation followed by stagnation, delay of consequence and uh, uh, decay of content. And the one you're asking about is delay of consequence. If you ain't cheat, I mean, one of the things I can't stand. You ain't cheating, you ain't trying. When people talk about you ain't cheating, you ain't trying, it's usually with a big, dumb, stupid grin on their face. Just like I'm doing right now. <laughs> Except I've heard it so many times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the thing is, it's just like, you know, I go, here, I got a better one for you. If you cheat in training, you're stealing from yourself. Once upon a time, back in the day, these people were either coming from a war or they were getting ready to go for the next war. And they took life really seriously. And um, they had this thing that was called playing the game. And I actually, I actually learned about it from some really seasoned Vietnam veterans when I, when I was a lot younger. 
And these guys were talking about, yeah, playing the game. It's like playing the game in training. And it took me a long time to really understand what they were talking about. You know it's a training environment. You know that you're not going to get killed. You know he's not going to stick you with a knife. You know he's not going to shoot you. But you still behave as if the sanction for any mistake you make is death. Why I call it delay of consequence is you don't find out about, you know, you don't find out that you were trained wrong until it's too late. Mm-hmm. I, I tell people, I said, look, if you want to become a fighter pilot in the Air Force, and they start off with classroom work, ground school, and then they put you in a trainer, and then you keep on moving up to more and more complicated things. If you're a screw up in the sky, they're going to cut you from the program before you kill yourself, or more importantly, damage this bazillion dollar airplane. It doesn't matter how nice a guy you are. You know what? You're dangerous in a cockpit. Mm -hmm. You just don't have it. Same thing with the Navy. You come in as an ensign. If you're a bridge officer, there's this whole long process you have to go through before they, the captain ever allows you to take the ship out of Harbor. Because if you're the type that's going to ram the ship into another one or do something stupid like that, they're going to cut you from the program before that happens. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the infantry, you show up as a second lieutenant, you're out in the woods somewhere, you're shooting blanks, people are shooting blanks at you, you do, you do something completely wrong. In most training programs, unless it's a really egregious mistake, it's like, ah, well, you know, his, his platoon sergeant will square him away. And then it's like years later, they find out that, man, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Or, you know, it's a case of, you know what? Turns out that, um, you know, we weren't hard enough on this guy in training. And when the bullet started going overhead, he threw his rifle down and started running away. To tie this into, to tie this into sniping, my favorite example of delay of consequence is, um, it's what, another one of my many pet peeves is when people talk about the significance of humidity in in rifle shooting because it's just so it's just so stupid the first army sniper manual after the 50s was tc23-14 and the draft copy came out in 1968 and then the final one came out in 1969 but even before that if you looked in the marine corps sniper manuals when you look up ballistics and they talk about the humid air is more dense so um for every 20% change in humidity from what you zeroed at, you need to raise your sights because the bullet's going to be passing through dense air. Or the, the other one that cracks me up is um, there was an army manual and they're talking about, uh, yes, humidity. Um, this is one of these things you need to keep, you need to keep a good data book and uh, figure this out for yourself. And I'm sitting here reading this going, you know, I would think, by the time you're in a position to be asked to write a sniper manual for the military, you would like have a strong opinion on the matter one way or another. But now here's the part that everybody misses. And in fact, it wasn't until 2017 with the latest Army sniper manual. It was written by a by a terrific NCO by the name of Christopher Rance, who was an instructor at the Fort Benning Sniper School. And his is the first manual that corrects this. Because if you look at every man, I mean, every manual 
between 2017 and 1968, when it talks about humidity, it says that, uh, you know, humid air is more dense and you need to raise the sites. The trouble is, it's completely opposite. Humid air is less dense than dry air. And if anything, you would need to lower the sites. But the thing is, nobody goes to the range with a hygrometer to read humidity. Therefore, nobody was actually applying this stuff for the decades that it was repeated in manuals. So you had a bunch of people that, hey, Matt, I need you to revise the, the last edition of the sniper manual. And it's like, well, I've never used, you know, I've never compensated for humidity on the range, but I don't want to, I don't want to look stupid. So I'm just going to cut and paste this into the new manual. You know where they get it right? Mm. The army manual on how to fly a helicopter, mm. because you have to calculate the effect of temperature and humidity when you're, you're going to be hovering in and out of ground effect. Okay, so when you're doing, when a pilot is doing his atmosphere calculations, he has to know humid, humid air is less dense than dry air. So now, see, there's no delay of consequence because if you get it wrong flying a helicopter, you're either not going to be able to take off or you're going to crash when you land. But just writing any bogus thing in an Army sniper manual. For years and years and years, people kept on repeating this stuff without ever actually doing it. Mm -hmm. So, so it's just it's just one of those like I I, I totally I can totally see this going like you just said like well I've never I don't who might have challenged this I've never tested it sounds reasonable we'll leave it and then yeah exactly so so with playing the game you used to see that a lot where uh, when the army when the army was doing POW training. Because the thing is, it's like, look, you know, I know you're really not going to kill me. You're really not going to break my arm. Okay. You're really not going to execute me out here in the street. But all of that understood when somebody captures you and they're pointing a 45 at you with either unloaded or nothing but blanks in it, you still hold up your hands and go, okay, I'll play the game. You got me. All right. I'm not going to. You know, I'm not going to call out to anybody because it's like in real life, this guy would shoot me. Mm -hmm. So that was, you know, and, and the thing is, it's like, I, you know, I found out that that had like disappeared so much in in tactical culture that I had to reintroduce it with that additional chapter. Well, so I think what really reminds me of. I think the direct correlation, because I, I see this antagonism between gamer shooting and then training for real, like real tactical shooting. And I know there's supposed to be this, like, hey, like being really good at the competitive side of it contributes to performing under pressure. But then you go to something like a PRS match and I mean, what, hey, it's again, it's game. But then like everybody's breaking out airbags and all this fun stuff that's just like winning the game. But it's not really... That like if you were preparing to actually do this for real, like you're not going to have all that stuff with you. Just kind of like getting away from the intent of pra practicing for something right. real. So it's almost the opposite. It's playing the game for the sake of playing the game, but now it's totally a game and that like devoid of this is how it would actually go down. 
I think that my favorite, you know, almost every match seems to have this. It's like, oh, I'm sitting on the, I'm sitting on a porcelain toilet that got in the middle of the range. Take out your rifle and shoot down the little pigeons, you know, at a hundred yards. You can't stand up from the toilet. Like, <laughs> figure it out. Um, it's fun. Well, I'm going to say, wait, it's fun, but it's also not like that's not realistic training or realistic practice for something. I don't see the, the contributable skills for that as much. Transferable skills, I'd say. Right. So, you know, so it was a case of, you know, once again, the longer you delay the consequences for whatever mistakes you make in training, or if you're trained wrong, you know, like I said, and that's why I, you know, I, I, I keep on harping in the book that, you know, students need to trust their training, but instructors have to give training that students can trust. Mm-hmm. And, and people, people often leave out the second part. And so like in the case of, uh, you know, so like, you know, the way I ended that chapter, uh, I was really grateful to Mike Chauvin of, um, he's a, uh, he's actually a cop up in Connecticut and he's one of the few people that has a, uh, sniper craft has expanded across the country and he actually runs the, uh, the new England sniper craft in, in Connecticut. We were talking, uh, at sniper craft just um just last year i I was so glad that uh he allowed me to you know quote him in that story because it just it just encapsulated it right there you know i I don't know if you want me to get into it but no uh, no that's fine actually i I wanted to go a little bit slight twinge because you talked about some technical stuff and i actually had some technical questions one of them actually something you brought up the last time we talked three years ago and i've always wanted to ask you ever since uh so in that conversation, we kind of got into like what people always feel like they have to have. And one of them is always a bipod. And and you, you said something along the lines of there's actually a specific use for a bipod besides just like, I'm going to lay out prone. And I always wanted to ask you what that was. Specific use for a bipod when. So, like, so basically like, what's the bipod used for aside from I'm going to lay prone and flip the little feet down. Oh, um, Basically, you uh, you can use it. You can use it to uh, uh, hold your rifle steady while you're uh, cleaning out the bore. Okay, <laughs> and that's that's it. It's, it's funny because how many times I see like everybody feel, and I'm not immune to this because I I think I've got two rifles posted behind me, both of them with bipods. But for the most part, it's like there's nothing I feel like I can do with a bipod that I couldn't just do with a pack or a bag. Right or or something else like, but it feels like it's yeah, always one of those must have. Because one, one of the things that annoys me about bipods is is complete people are completely unaware. Uh, you know they they have no self awareness, and I constantly harp to everybody. You know even though I you know I I wrote a you know I write books on sniper marksmanship. I always consider myself a field craft guy, mm-hmm. and the sniper's first duty is to be sneaky and i can't tell you over the years how many people i've seen you know they'll like crawl up into you know you know they uh they set up their position on the range they rip open the velcro on their carrying cases and then they you know boing boing and snap open the bipod legs Mm -hmm. and it (laughs) It's not in there, you know, and of course, well, I'll do it different when it's real. <laughs> yeah, okay. I mean, as I uh, 
because uh, my favorite comeback for that is, yeah, six months from now at three o'clock in the morning, sneaking up on Repulsive Brogan's house, you're you're gonna, you know, you're you're gonna do it the way that you haven't been practicing it. Got it. One of the other things you added in the book here then was the sniper survey. And yes. uh, it was a lot of really interesting facts that I kind of started alluding to. So I'm just going to summarize, you know, what's like the, what's like a three minute version of like, what do people not sure. understand? So um, the American Sniper Association, which I'm not a member of uh, since, um, you know, since the, the, you know, the early two thousands, they've been doing a, uh, what they call the sniper utilization survey because if you go online, you'll hear all kinds of people without any substantiation going, well, the average distance for a sniper, you know, police sniper is 78 yards or 75 yards or something like that. And when the ASA stood up, one of the projects they what they wanted to do to put themselves on the map was to go, hey, let's get a hold of that report and see if we can update it. So they started searching around and nobody had it. Turns out the report didn't exist. It was just something that had appeared out of nowhere. Um, I've tried tracing it down. The earliest I can trace it is to a Florida police department in 1982 that used it in a course of fire. But I haven't found anything that explains the whole 78-yard number. So they said, hey, there's our project. We're going to do surveys of every SWAT team in the United States, and we're going to find out what distance uh, police snipers engage people at, what positions they used, what the time of day was, all this other stuff. And then we're going to codify it. And I I do the statistical analysis for that. And I decided to do a deep dive a couple years ago. And um, the sniper surveys themselves aren't available to the general public. But this, uh, the stuff that's in the appendix has been cleared by... Um, the American Sniper Association, which owns the data, that um, uh, you know all of the all of the data in there is is releasable, and I wanted to share that with the public because that gives you the best indication of the environment that you're working in. And um, I, I did it because there's a lot of people in the police sniper community that think. You're, you're, you know, you're not doing your job if you don't shoot out to six, if you don't train out to 600 yards. And it turns out that, you know, best practices are within 200 yards and maybe 300 yards if your jurisdiction calls for it. But I looked at, uh, I crunched the numbers as far as time of day and um, uh, distance, uh, distance by position found out that, uh, yes, the prone position is um, the most common position that shots are taken from. But big surprise, the standing offhand position is the second most popular, second most handy position for engaging bad guys. And one of the longest, one of the longest shots on record was actually taken from standing offhand. I was surprised by that when I saw the numbers in there of how common standing was. It kind of, it kind of ignited that I should practice standing more. Right. Because the thing is, once again, and I always tell people, look, wherever you are, if, you know, if you're not going to draw too much attention to yourself, get down in the prone position and see how far you can see. You may be surprised, but when you're standing up on your, you know, 
as uh, we used to say at the Fort Bragg Sodic, when you're standing up on your hind legs, shooting like a man, um, you know, you can see a lot farther. And also when you're engaging a moving target, that's not cooperating with your efforts to shoot it, then you've got a lot better options from the standing position. Yeah, that was a great it was a great bit of of information in there. So it, it, it kind of all feeds back into this idea, though, of the that zero to three hundred is like the really the outer limits for most things, especially if you're not actually a sniper. If you're a civilian, at realistically, so so that's now so that gets me right into the um, the next question because last time we talked, you said the same thing, which was the first job of a sniper is to be yeah. sneaky. And I wanted to ask, so you know, what what other skills are there? So fieldcraft is a big one, you know. Right. But like, if in your mind, like, I realize that from a, a sniper's perspective, or the the job of a sniper, the actual shooting part of it is not that big of a role relative to everything else, especially when it comes to observation, intelligence gathering, all that kind of stuff. But what else? What other skills does someone should they have if they wanted to be, you know, a, a well-rounded sniper? Okay, they have to uh, they have to be able to apply the, the the principles of whatever theory of camouflage that they're using, and they have to be able to move tactically. In uh, I'll ask you the the same question that I ask every one of my students when I begin teaching fieldcraft. Mm-hmm. Little thought experiment, and you know, give it to give, you know give it some thought. Don't, don't feel, you know, you're not timed on your response. Okay? <laughs> I'll just edit out to make it sound like I had a really fast. <laughs> so if you have somebody with perfect observation skills, looking for somebody with perfect concealment skills, what's going to be the outcome? If you have somebody who's, who, who's a master of concealment going up against somebody who's a master of observation, what's going to be the outcome? My gut is to say nothing, that the person who the concealment is going to win because there's nothing to be observed. Correct. See, you're one of the, now, believe it or not, there's very few people that actually get that. They're like, um, you know, it'd be a draw. It's a, how, how's it a draw? But anyway, so the thing is, how does, that, how does observation work? Observation works by picking up the stakes that people are making. Mm-hmm. Ergo, if the person they're looking for doesn't make any mistakes, there's nothing to see. Okay. So this is kind of like the whole, you know, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody (laughs) hears it, does it make a sound? Well, the thing is, if I can't detect a sniper in the woods, is there one there? What you're doing is, is you're, you know, you're, you're basically you're, you're fighting the mind of your opponent. Mm-hmm. All right. It's not a physical fight. I mean, you know, you're, you're crawling on each other from like, you know, 400, 400 meters apart. Okay. You're not in a physical altercation. In the case of police sniping, you're coming up, you know, you're, you're, you're stalking up to put eyes onto a meth lab prior to a raid. A, I don't want them to know that there's anybody out here. But then there's other situations where it's like, okay, they know there's going to be somebody out there. Well, I don't want them to know that they're a police sniper. Well, they know that there's police snipers out there. Well, I don't know. I want. I don't want them to know where they are. Mm-hmm. See, so it's like this whole. It's like this whole continuum 
of stuff you can get away with. Mm-hmm. All right. It, it, it's one of these things where, you know, you can be, uh, we used to tell people on the stocks and, um, it was my partner, one of my partners at Fort Bragg, Mike McClister, he instituted, um, uh, we started doing thousand yard, uh, stocks against an observer. You know, initially guys start off and they're, you know, they're, they're moving an inch at a time and everything else. And then they would realize, Hey man, you got a time limit. Okay. And just like in real life, you don't have three days to move a hundred yards. Okay. You have to, you know, be there on time and on target without being detected. So you have to strike a balance. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, there, so like I said, there's a tactical movement. There's the principles of camouflage. You have to be a good observer in order to be a good concealer. So that way you know what people are looking for. Mm-hmm. What knocks me out is this whole emphasis on this ghillie suit thing, okay? Because um, and I, in, in my other book, Sniper's Notebook, I, I, I have a whole chapter on why ghillie suits don't work, why, why it's not a good idea. And... Um, I'll summarize I'll summarize one of the stories in the in the chapter. But basically, I was working at a sniper school with the 10 Special Forces group. And we had this, we had team guys, but we also had because it was a unit school, we also had 10th group support guys going through when we had enough slots. And I I, I never had a problem with that. So because you know, in special forces, uh special forces doctrine, who who is supposed to defend the base camp while the teams are downrange, you know, playing the fool and it's support guys. So I had no problem with sniper qualifying support guys. So they go to the school. So we had this kid named uh, Mosley and um, he was a truck driver and um, he was partnered up with this team guy, John Meadows, who I knew. And, uh, you know, normally everything is like laid back and informal and everything else. Meadows is like making Mosley address him as Sergeant Meadows and all this other stuff. So, uh, so one day the, the first Sergeant stops by and he was actually an old teammate of mine. So he comes by and we're catching up and all this stuff. And Meadows goes, Hey, uh, top, you're the, uh, so you're the, you're the support company, you know, you're the, you know, you're the support company first Sergeant, huh? I want you to meet one of your men and they just come back from a stock. So Mosley's wearing a ratty t-shirt. He's got camo on his face. I mean, you know, he's a mess. Okay. He's a Sergeant major's nightmare. And he's meeting <laughs> his first Sergeant for the first time. Thanks to Meadows. So, you know, I, you know, I pulled, I pulled the first, you know, I pulled uh, first Sergeant Christina off to the side. Hey, Chris, you know, this, you know, this is what's going on. You know, he's like, yeah, he understood. Mm-hmm. But Mosley was like so ticked off at Meadows, you couldn't believe it. So we're getting ready to go on a stalk. And uh, guys are all gillied up. And Mosley goes up to Meadows. He goes, wow, Sergeant Meadows, how'd you build your ghillie suit here? What kind of garnish do you have on this? Oh, well, you know, I've got you know burlap here and this and that. And meanwhile, everybody else is watching. Meadows pulls a piece of orange parachute silk out of his pocket, ties it to the back of Meadows' ghillie suit as a flag. And we're all watching it going, 
good one, man. Yeah, good one, mostly. Okay. So um, so they take off on the stock and they don't think anything about it. Now, the way a stock normally works is uh, uh, they have two blanks. And the first blank is essentially a signal for a walker to come over there and then run through this whole thing where, you know, you stand, okay, you know, you tell the observation point, I'm this close, I'm this close to him, or he's in this direction. Okay. And then you narrow it down and then he fires the second blank to see if, you know, he's, he's concealed the muzzle flash. So I get up there, I find out it's Meadows, orange flag and all has made it all the way up to his firing point. And uh, I go ahead and work him because I was working as a walker. He passes the stalk with an orange flag on his back. And it, it was really funny because it's like, uh, you know, I said, okay, you know, head on up to uh, head on up to the OP. And I radio up there. I said, hey, tell Meadows to look at the back of his ghillie suit when he gets up there. And he gets up there. And across the whole stalking lane, which was like, it was on, it was on a drop zone. You hear this, Mosley, I'm going <laughs> to kill you. But I looked at that and I'm going, this guy just, this guy just passed a stalk with a fluorescent orange panel on his back. Why are we teaching people to put 50 pounds of burlap on their backs in order to hide from observation? Mm -hmm. And then that's, I mean, that just created a whole paradigm shift to where I got to stop teaching ghillie suits because, I mean, the stuff is unnecessary, you know? So it's just, it comes back to just good understanding of camouflage available to you, yeah, motion you, you, and uh, noise. Yeah, yeah. But it, it also comes down to people don't know why they do what they mm -hmm. do. So everybody talks about, uh, you know, it's really interesting looking up sniping online every once in a while, because it's just like either you'll find out something really interesting or you'll hear something really stupid. And like, you know, you always hear about, well, you know, the, the Brits and they had the Lovett scouts and that's how ghillie suits came into it and all this stuff. I actually found uh, an official history of the Lovett scouts in the, in the, in the British army that had been written by the current Lord Lovett. And there's something so interesting in there that I went ahead and I, I scanned it in and I highlighted it and and, kept, and I keep it in my files because it explains how the Lovett Scouts actually did a stalk in wartime. So it was during the Boer War in South Africa. And they had this, um, they have these, um, uh, they have these like three draw telescopes, like, you know, Jack Sparrow uses called a scout regiment telescope. It's about a 24 power scope. And um, in the history of the Lovett scouts, Lord Lovett was talking about in the Boer War, these two Lovett scouts stalked, they stalked up on a Boer sentry over a distance of 800 yards. And there is not a single mention of ghillie suits. Hmm. And the way they did it was, you and I are out stalking, okay? I pull out my scope. You know, I mean, we're cammied up, okay? But it's like, I pull out my scope, and I'm looking at the sentry. 
Every time he faces away from us, I say, go, Matt. And you crawl forward just, you know, as quickly as you can and, you know, without, without floundering around. And then as soon as he starts to turn back around to face us, I say, stop. And you pancake. Mm. Then whatever distance you traveled, you pull out your scope, open it, look at the sentry. And as you see him turn around, you go, go, John. So it's just, so it's just bounding. It's just bounding yeah. the same way you would. So, yeah. So the thing is, it's like, if the guy isn't looking at him, they're for all intents and purposes, you know, by definition, they're invisible. Hmm. And there's no mention of 50 pounds of comb burlap or, or anything, or, you know, canvas skid pads on the front of coveralls or anything else. I mean, it was just good tactical movement. And, you know, a procedure that was able to get them from point A to point B unobserved. All right. See, I love those stories. I feel like we can go on for a long time. Unfortunately, I am <laughs> going to run out of time here. So, um, John, um, what, the final word here. So I appreciate your time talking to me again. Um, but final word. So where can people get a hold of you and find your book? You know, the book is still Foundations of Sniper Marksmanship. It's now being published by a terrific company called Blue 360 Media. They purchased the previous publisher, Loose Leaf Ball Publishing. And um, these guys are pretty amazing. They, they normally offer um, legal references for uh, police and lawyers. And they have a digital app that goes onto your phone and... Um, so there's you can um, you can use their app to have a digital copy of my book. It's available on the Blue 360 Media website, and it's also available uh, on Amazon under the original title. But yeah, there's um, uh, 48 more pages of material from the uh, from the old book. Um, some stuff that really really needed sharing, and. Um, yeah, I, I think people will find it interesting. All right. We're going to wrap it up. John, as always, it's a pleasure. We probably need to talk again sometime yeah. soon because I always, I always enjoy these conversations and I feel like there's always more that could be said and I always run out of time. But um, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming back on. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, you know, glad to, glad to come back. And, uh, you know, I'll um, always look forward to coming back just as, you know, long as I'm not your last, but you know, not, not your last podcast. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, you know, anytime. All right. And that is going to wrap up this interview with John Simpson. I hope you enjoyed that one. I haven't done a good hour long one in a long time. Um, so some key takeaways, I'll put those all in my show notes here. Um, but I'll, I'll leave you with this one here. Here's some things I really took away from this that just stuck with me. And the first one is what I named this whole thing, which is, if you are cheating yourself in training, then you are stealing from yourself. I think that is a profound statement in a lot of ways. It applies in a lot of contexts, everything from competition, sniping, training, of courses in this conversation, but even things like talking about the gym, cheating yourself out of your gym routine today robs you of your potential in the future. Uh, it happens in any skill you're learning in school or academics. Don't cheat. Cheating is how you 
set yourself up for failure. So that's one thing. Second, we talked a lot about trained fire and the musketry. I think that's a topic we should talk about more in the future of what is marksmanship versus musketry. Uh, I, I alluded to the nine items that he wrote in his book that were the principles of trained fire. I put them on the show notes of the website. So again, check it out, everydaymarksman.co. What stood out to me in there, like the 300 yard uh, maximum range and the, the iron sights and windage is it really sets up that this is why the original AR-15 and the M16A1 was a gunfighter's rifle. It, it was to a T mapped to these requirements of something that would be successful um, for a military member or a defender in a civilian context. Um, it's really, really good principles. And I think we've lost something by getting away from that kind of training program. And uh, the third thing I'll take away from this one, which we got into when we're talking about the sniping skills and movement and things like that, is that it's really easy to get bogged down in details like your ghillie suits or camouflage when the fundamentals will always work. The fundamentals of just how to be mindful and think about if you can't be seen because they're not looking at you, then that is good enough. So don't overthink it. Get out there and go practice it. And with that, I will say goodbye. Thanks for listening. And I will catch you next time. Matt out. <laughs>